I mean, now, I'm surprised now. Now, see, I'm tired of y'all surprising me with gifts. Now, Jenny and, uh, and TJ. Now, I ain't even know how y'all just going to, y'all got to prepare me. Quiet, you know, boy, I tell you. I, I knew about, you know, I, I knew about Sister Bell and I knew about Lemuel. That kind of rhymed. But I, I'm, I'm, I like, I'm just always blown away by the gifts. I heard somebody singing. A couple of people singing recently. I'm a little mad at y'all, at your giftedness that nobody knows about. But thank God for those who are using their gifts. We're excited um, that Jesus has chosen to give us so many gifted people to be able to display their giftedness um, before the body of Christ. Um, my, um, my wife is always get, like, gets on me right now because when I was growing up, you know, I had interesting Christmas experiences. Um, real bad Christmas. I, I, like, I, like, I had real bad Christmas. Um, when I was growing up. And because of that, you know, when you have bad Christmases, you know, you want to you wanna kind of change that when you, when you become an adult. And so one of the things I'm always doing, like my wife is always, she has to like put reins around me because I'll just get Manny all kinds of stuff for Christmas. So she had to put parameters around me. And um, as I began to think about, you know, I said, Dad, if I, be, if I continue to, if I don't let her bring those reins in on me, you know, I'll, I'll probably create for him a false philosophy of this time. And not even, and, and not just a false philosophy, but, but even, even like, even like not properly allowing him to see the redemptive value in this time of the year. And so I want to be able to maximize that time. But as we, as we dive into a, a Christmas text, I'm, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to go into Isaiah 9 today. And, you know, as I go in, I, I'm not going to give much application today. No, hardly any application. Um, I, I want you to just trek with me um, through this story, through this text today. And I just want to give you a picture of him, of Christ. And I just want you to meditate on it. I'm not going to have a bunch of imperatives for you today, a bunch of what God is going to do for you today. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm like, because I, I don't think this text was meant to do that. Like as the more and more I looked at it and I tried to, div- I tried to do my normal homiletical questions to it, you know, you do homiletical questions to ask, how does this apply to the people? What does it look like in their life? So what? And as I began to look at the context of the passage and the nature of the passage, um, it, 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 really to, it really honestly doesn't afford itself to that. It's supposed to do something in particular that possibly leads to application, but it's supposed to do something in our souls. And, 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 I, and I love this passage for so many reasons. And us going into this passage reminds me of our times, you know, because right now, you know, Obama's about to be president. And um, one of the things that surrounded his coming to uh, the presidency has been hope. Um, hope. And, 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 I, and I understand that. Now, so don't look at me like I'm about to bash Obama. I just... Like, like I, I've, I've, I've struggled a little bit with, I don't know, just the level of confidence, um, the level of, uh, like, like, like they believe that his presence is going to literally change America. And people have thought that about leaders for centuries. That's nothing new. 
that a leader is going to come in and their regime is going to bring everything that people have been wanting for a long time. And so they're calling it change. They're calling it hope. And, and I understand on a temporal le level what that might mean. But every single leader disappoints. Everyone. In the context of this passage, you'll see that God's people are facing exile. And one of the things that God's people have been disappointed with is hoping that the next leader is going to do a better job. <laughs> over and over and over again throughout Israel, you look at the kings, you look at um, any of the historical books outside of the judges where kings were ruling Israel. And one of the things that you see is people hoping that things will get better. And sometimes things got worse. Sometimes things even got externally better, but not internally better. And so I think that many times in our lives that we put too much stock in leaders who are not necessarily going to bring what only Christ himself can bring. Even in hip-hop culture, everybody's seeking to, 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 to bring a particular change or attention to their region. Jadakiss got a new song out, and, 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 and Jadakiss' whole feel is, yo, I'm going to put New York back on the map. And so you got everybody wanting to be king of New York. You got T.I. saying he's king of the South. And so everybody wants to bring attention to something because they believe that their time period in which they're given opportunity to shine is going to bring systemic change um, to, 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 the, to their populace. And here in this passage, Jesus is presented. Many scholars fuss about whether or not this is merely talking about Hezekiah. But as we, as we peruse this pericope, I'm telling you right now that you're not going to see anyone or any type of human king that can floss like this. No, no, there is no king in, in existence that this, this as and beefy as this king that Yahweh presents in this passage. And in the midst of some of the greatest frustration and in um, the midst of some of the greatest turmoil... Yahweh presents the ideal king. Verses 6 and 7. Matter of fact, I'll start at verse 1. And we'll just walk through for a few minutes, verses 6 and 7, then I'll be out of your way. <laughs> it says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee and of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has a light shined. You have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian 
For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I just want to talk about today during our time, who the king. That's it. Who the king. Real simple. And I said, duh, not the. Duh. I should say Kang. K-A-N-G. Who the Kang? I saw Arkansas put their hand up. They like that. That's how you say Kang, ain't it? I know, I know. <laughs> this, this passage rocks me. And, and, and I'm looking at Ahaz, your man Ahaz, who has flunked as a ruler, as a king. And, and we've come into a period where Yahweh is beginning to raise the stakes. And as he raises the stakes, he begins to lay out for his people who the king is going to be. But what's interesting, as we'll see, is the text never actually calls this person a king. Interesting. But the text has the aroma and the fragrance of a king or of royalty. Because what the writer is trying to do and what God is trying to do through the writer is saying, what others were only entitled, this one will be it in practice and function. So he won't just be a king just by name. In other words, God was so prophet Isaiah he says I'm gonna tell you what a king is like rather than announcing him as the title king and so he dives in and blows our minds away about what this king is like as we will see from the text is the Lord Jesus Christ so that's my first point that brings me to my first point Jesus is a humble king Jesus is a humble king. It says, for unto us a child is born, and for unto us a son is given. Interesting. Unto us a child is born, and the son is given. What's interesting is most people uh, think this is basically for us some type of, some, it's not what we think it is. It's actually not a coronation of a king. See, Psalm 2 would be a coronation of a king. Coronation meaning a king being a, a presented and crowned as king before God's people. That, that's not what this is in this passage. In this passage, instead of it being the coronation of a king, it's actually the birth announcement of the king. Like when people have children, one of the things that they do is they send out a birth announcement letting you know that the child has been born and what the name of that child is going to be. 
Well, Yahweh does the same thing for this child. But it's interesting that this child is described as a king. Most kings are not described that way. And it says, for unto us a child is born, pointing to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Points to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was authentically human. He wasn't a spook. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't some a transient Gnostic being. He was actual humanity. So even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, some people say, well, Isaiah didn't have that in mind. Well, you got to look at Isaiah's possible understanding, but then you got to go and understand divine understanding. Because God has a transcending understanding that even foreshadows that of the prophet and the people that he was writing to. And, 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 so, and so it says, a child is born. And I, I don't know what Isaiah was probably thinking about this. But it says, this king will be born. But then it says, in the second part, it says, and to us a son is given. Beautiful. Because what this points to is that there will be a child born humanity, but a son is given. So if the son is given, that means he already existed before he became a child. The child was born, but the son is given. Not only does it speak of that, it speaks of Jesus Christ's eternal sonship. The fact that he didn't become the son. There's some people out there that are teaching that Jesus became the son. No, the Bible teaches that he always existed as the son. And so here, the Bible, and what's interesting is that it's talking about God giving him. No, no, no king was ever thought of and even thought of in this, in this, in this way. Micah 5.2. I love the way it's laid out in Micah 5.2. Because in Micah 5, 2, it says, but you, uh, but you O Bethlehem, uh, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, uh, uh, for me, uh, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Whenever you see that terminology, that means that there's a pre-existence of the one in whom he's talking about. Daniel, in his visions, saw one who was like the ancient of days. Nebuchadnezzar said, there's a cat in there. I don't know what to call him, but he looks like the son of the gods. In other words, even in his faulty understanding of it, it was pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. So when we think about Christmas... And we think about the simplicity of this time of year and focusing us in. I know some of y'all going down to the gallery. You know, y'all looking for sales. I know you're going to you know, Franklin Mills and you're going out uh, to, to, to Lancaster to the, to, to the outlets and everything. But I pray that during this time you don't forget about the child who was born, but the eternal son who was given. The one who took on humanity tucking everything into humanity and becoming humbled. The humbled Lord Jesus, the son being given. And now, now look, look at what it says after that. It says the child is born, humanity, son given, deity. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This, 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 I, I, I was struck. I looked at so many commentaries to try to work out what I was exegetically thinking through as I was working through this passage. And I think I've had a faulty understanding of what it means for the government to be upon the shoulders of Jesus. Because in this passage, it's talking technically about the Lord Jesus coming and taking responsibility to rule because of the faulty rulers that have come before him. The, the, the actual translation of this can be even more clearly translated. He will shoulder the government. I like that. He will shoulder the government. It, it doesn't necessarily mean when he came in his incarnation and the government persecuting him. That's not what it's saying here. And, and many of us with our New Testament understanding will run to that. And I, I've done that myself. But literally what it means here, and it's pointing to the fact that Jesus will create a government ex nihilo, out of nothing. In other words, he will be responsible like no one has ever been responsible. So you got to understand what kings would do back then. They were monarchs. And what they would do is throughout their rule, wherever there was rule, if, if they had a span of geographical rule, because their seat or the capital was in one place, they would distribute governors all over the place. And what they would do in extending those governors out was to be an extension of their rule in another geographical area so that the rule of the, the crown prince or the crown ruler would extend to wherever their reign is. And so what Jesus is going to do for us people, and we'll talk about the increase of his government in a minute, but it's talking about here in this passage that Jesus Christ in his advent will take responsibility for rebuilding a responsible reign, for building a responsible government. He will not be irresponsible with what God has distributed to him, but he will be a gorgeous, responsible ruler. And the cross is the means by which this rule will take place. In other words, the cross is the means in which the government will come to fruition because it brings redemption. But it means that he will carry on his own shoulders the responsibility of what it means to actually govern God's people and govern God's universe. And I'll talk about the increase of his reign in just a minute. But then we not only see Jesus as humble, we see him as exalted king. It says, and his name shall be called. Stop there. I like that. Notice that it didn't say his names, plural, shall be called. He said, his name, singular, shall be called. And then it begins to walk through all that his name connotates. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of his names. See, these are not names, it's a name. Now, it doesn't tell you exactly what his name will be, but it tells you what his name will mean. Oh, I wish somebody was with me this morning. <laughs> and, 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 and so what God does through Isaiah, see, kings back then, when, when a child was born, they would get names of a deity like in Egypt. They would get a bunch of names. But what it would do is, it's interesting, it would like, I mean, no, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that. But... Long names. 
I had a friend in seminary, I'll just say it. I had a friend in, in seminary that was from Ghana. And I didn't, like, like they, the day that you're born on, they actually make that a part of your name. So he laid out this long name. And I was like, yo, like, walk me through all of that, man. You know what I'm saying? And, and he was, I'm not going to use accents. I think that's disrespectful. But he, he began walking me through his names. And all of these names were to connotate things about him or things that the parents wished would, 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 that he would reflect. But the father doesn't name Jesus what he wish he'll reflect. He names Jesus exactly what he'll reflect. And so he says, and his name singular. Oh, if I could stay on name. Name kind of takes character. Name, name, in other words, that's what the Bible says. A good name is better than rubies or diamonds. A good name is better than silver or gold. In other words, a name is supposed to, uh, is, is not just the title or, or a, a, a phonics of the, the name, but a name is a reputation that emanates from the character of a person. And so here in this passage, it's talking about the character of the king, Jesus. The Bible says, there is no name under heaven by which men can be saved. And at the name of Jesus. And it's interesting, the Bible says that the father has bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. In the Old Testament, people called on the name of Yahweh. In the New Testament, people call upon the name of Jesus. What the Father has done is he's taken all of his names, all of them, and he's injected them into the name of Jesus. So that everything that God makes available, he only makes available in the name. You can yell El Shaddai if you want to. You can, you can yell, yell Jehovah Sikhanu. You can yell Jehovah Rapha. You can yell Jehovah Nisi. But God isn't necessarily using those names to access what those names mean anymore. He's using one name, and that name is Jesus' name. And so in order to access everything that God has, you can't bypass Jesus. Because that's why his name is singular, Jesus. See, see, a lot of people on planet Earth want a lot of things, but they ask God for it bypassing Jesus. But there is nothing that God in the new covenant today is making available to us without Jesus. If you got an issue with Jesus, you got an issue with the Father. Because the Father says, I'm characterized by his name even. The Holy Spirit, even though they're different in persons, he's, connot he's characterized by the name of Jesus. That's why he's attracted to Jesus, not us. So, so, so the, I don't know if we really understand the power of the name of Jesus. But, but what, what the writer does in this passage is he gives us a sprinkling of these names. These names are just crazy. They are crazy. I mean, I, I mean, they are crazy. And, 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 I, and, and as I began, I had to stop studying them because it was just too much to talk about in these names. I just had to put my, my lexicons down, close my Hebrew Bible and say, let's just preach this. But the first thing that his name, and, 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 and it's interesting, 
Most names would be have L or R at the end, but these names have a little bit of a difference except for one of them that that most people who are kings, like, like when they came, their name would connotate something about them reflecting God. But the difference with these names is they don't reflect God. They seem to be God. So even the way the father names him is totally different than any other king was named. The first name he calls is a wonderful counselor. Oh, let me walk the floor before we walk into this one. Let me walk the floor. See, I thought that Jesus was a good nuthetic counselor. That's not what it's talking about here. Somebody help me today. That's not what it's talking. It's not talking about him sitting down with a cup of tea with you and him being on one side of the desk and you being on another side of the desk and, and him telling you, tell me all about it and how it all began. That's not what it's talking about here. Oh, it's not talking about him counseling through your troubles, even though he does do that. It's not, talking, it, it's not talking about him giving you advice. That's not what this is pointing to. Oh, my God. It's actually pointing to the fact that this king will not be a punk. I'll explain that to you. See, most of the kings in Israel, like if you read Isaiah and you read the life of Ahaz, who was a king during that period. Uh, help me get it all out, Lord. And, 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 and Ahaz was flunking as a strategist. He was afraid and he was a spiritual punk. And at this time, God's people had experienced their king flunking, punking out, and not having faith in Yahweh and not having any military strategy. So God says, this king, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, some people think his name should be called Wonderful Counselor. But it seems the connotation is a compound word pointing to how wonderful and counselor actually relate to one another. Stay with me, family. And what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ will be a banging military strategist. In other words, he will plan war well. Now, what, which, what would trouble the average person <clears throat> is that Jesus, the way he plans to come back, is actually a suicide mission. I'm explaining to you why. Because, see, I don't know if y'all remember, how many of y'all saw Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King, right? Y'all saw how when um, the two little uh, hobbits w didn't get to the, the fire thing yet, to drop the rings in, and how they were being surrounded by Orakai and carrying on. And all of them were just a few of them in the army in the middle. And when they saw that they were getting surrounded, the king looked at the cat and was like, I guess this is it. <laughs> so the king pulls out his sword and just starts running in battle. Now the look that they had on their face was, this is it fam. So I guess we're going to die in battle. Kings usually stood and watched as their people would go out in battle and he would talk to the general and tell them which, which flanks to go in next, which one. But this king is not that type of strategist. I, I'm blown away by how he's going to come back. He he's called the Lord of hosts. That means he has a lot of fighters. This is the same Jesus 
when Jesus was on planet Earth and Peter cut off a piece of the high priest servant's ear, said, fall back. He said, now, if I wanted to, I can, I can go hooty hoo to heaven. <laughs> and 72,000 angels will come down and start wrecking shop. Matter of fact, one prophet was cussing out a, a, a donkey. And the donkey was like, I'm telling you, fam. Don't go forward. He had an angel that was going to go slip slap. You know what I'm saying? So we're talking about a God who has a crazy army. And God doesn't fight wars he can't win. Because all of them he wins. But, but, but when this counselor comes back, he's counseled himself to say, look, I'm going to get everybody on my team with their battle gear on. Now, what's funny about the battle gear of the people described in Revelation is nobody has on armor. None of them. They got on linen. About the thinnest thing you can wear. Folk got swords, shields, you know what I'm saying? Angels, bunch of believers. But the king's in the front. The king usually is fortified by a bunch of people protecting him. But this strategist does a backwards strategy for warfare. He says, I will go out in front. Matter of fact, I know y'all are dressed for battle. Like, and I know y'all got my back. But I am going to be the only one that fights this one. So this king is a backward strategist. He will dismount his horse, and the Bible says that his sword is in his mouth. So that means Jesus will reach in his mouth and grab his sword out, unsheave it, so he won't be talking. I know it's, you know, figurative language of him just slashing cats up or what he says will go out, but Jesus will fight and he will war without any help from the people that he's brought as fighters and who are qualified fighters. Jesus could tell either one of us in the eternal state, Manny, I want you to unsheave your sword and just light everybody up, and you'll be fine. But he chooses. <laughs> he chooses to fight our battle even though he has empowered us to fight. What kind of king is this? And the Bible calls that strategy wonderful. Wonderful. Now, notice kings usually have counselors for how to do the war, but it calls him his own counselor. <laughs> Y'all ain't with me, man. Dang. This is rocking me. That... This king is so beastly that Messiah will do his thing by himself. So wonderful counselor. But not only that, it calls him mighty God. Now, <clears throat> wonderful counselor just points to the fact that he will be <clears throat> a great strategist. But mighty God points to him actually being a rugged warrior. He's not afraid to get dirty, even though he won't. I always blow my, it always blows my mind 
that Jesus doesn't have on any armor while he's fighting because he's not planning on getting hit. That's Jesus. That's Jesus, the one who will get out himself. Like, I can't imagine. And he's still we- he will still be wearing battle scars that he had from being on the cross. And he'll be coming back to clear his name that he was innocent. And he's called the mighty God, mighty warrior. And if you look at the cats during that time, I, I, li- I like actually what this word is. It's, it's called El Gabor. Can you say that? El Gabor. I like that. Say it again. I like hearing it come out your mouth. El Gabor. That's mighty God. So he will be mighty God. And this word, this language of him being mighty God is only used of him and Yahweh himself. But then it goes from him talking about he's wonderful, counselor, mighty God. But then it says everlasting father. Now, don't start getting trinitarily excited. Because if you have the son being called father, that's heresy. So it's not talking about him being father in the sense that we think he's father. Kings were usually called fathers of their nations. But here it calls him father of something in particular. It says he's father of eternity. Points to him as being creator God. Points to the fact that not, not, not pointing to any, any, any point of him being, being the, God the Father himself, but it's talking about his creative power and uh, his ability to create eternity itself. And so this points to the king having creative power, oversight, and control of eternity. In controlling eternity, this king will allow one to enter it in a redeemed or unredeemed state. So it points to him not only just creating eternity, but he's the accessor of eternity. That's why Jesus in John 10 says, I am the door to the sheepfold. If anyone attempts to come past me, he or she is a thief and a robber. And so here is talking about him allowing access to which way you enter eternity. In other words, everybody's going to enter eternity. Everybody, whether redeemed or unredeemed. The question is, will you enter a Christ eternity or a Christ-less eternity? But he is the one who will determine what type of eternity everyone will be able to enter into. But not only does it call him wonderful counselor, mighty God, Um, father of eternity or everlasting father, but it calls him prince of peace. And it points to the one, Jesus being the one who will bring comprehensive wholeness, he will reboot the universe. Not only that, he's wrecking, and this points to him reconciling God and man and reconciling man and man. And not only reconciling God and man and man and man, but God to creation and man to creation. So everything will be started over through this Prince of Shalom. But it's interesting. I was looking at this and I had never seen this before. Note the chronology of the titles. Wonderful Counselor points to him being a planning, 
planning and a strategizer. This is prior to the war. Mighty God, he will fight in the war. Everlasting Father, he will judge for people to enter eternity in whatever ways. And then from that, rebooting the universe, Prince of Peace. So all the way through, you see the chronology of his titles pointing to how he's going to put things together. Just crazy. And so even the titles have with it his whole layout of how the... So the father is actually describing a timetable of his names or his titles being a role in how he's going to bring everything to fruition. So he's a planner and a strategist. He's a fighter. He's a judge. And last but not least, he's a redeemer of everything. And so the Lord Jesus Christ... I was just I was just sitting in my basement today and I was just re looking over this again. And I've read the Quran and I, not the whole thing, but I've read through it. And I was, I was like, man, I don't see anything like this in it. Like, like y'all, when I read stuff like this and, I, and God gives me exegetical discoveries like this, it affirms for me more and more how power a man could not have done that. I mean, I'm just, just, just as a side note, a man could not have set the text up like this. Like, like a man could have just, like, it's every time I, I study to prepare for sermons, I'm more and more convinced that the word of God is inerrant and that it has divine intent as priority and that no human being is brilliant enough to come up with what God has laid out in it. I mean, as I'm looking at that, when I saw that the other day, I was like, dang. Like, God is even using the names to point to how he's going to come out. Blows me away. This king of kings. But last, as I get ready to take my seat, we'll finally go to verse 7. Not only is Jesus humble, not only is he an exalted king, but finally, he is the ideal king. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Wow. Now, you have to understand a couple of things. <laughs> I know we're just walking through. You ain't getting no application today. Just meditate on him. It's pointing to his dominion and rule. Now, what's beautiful about this, remember I told you how monarchs would distribute their rulers throughout their territory. Well, what it's saying is after Jesus shoulders the government, after he puts away all of the father's enemies based on Psalm 110, 1 and 2, he'll destroy everything. Here it's talking about the increase of his government. <laughs> and what it says here, is that though, basically it points to the fact that he will be ruling from Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, and those in Christ will be distributed are all about his territory on planet Earth. And we will be his vice regents. Now check this out. Adam was supposed to do this originally. Adam was supposed to be the president of the world. And he was supposed to bring... God glory through physical reproduction. But the second Adam brings God glory through spiritual reproduction. 
See, the first Adam failed at developing a God-centered global government. But now the second Adam will have an increased reign. I, I know that, you know, that the Mormons say that all of the men are going to be gods of planets. You know, you have your own planet, I'll have my own planet, and people will be our vice regents. Some old spooky, crazy, left-field th philosophy that's not in the Bible. But it's talking about planet Earth here. And the increase of his government shall have no end. The Bible says we will reign with him. Matter of fact, they will call trustworthy statements. Stay with me. 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we endure, we will reign with him. Revelation 20, 26 says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 says, To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. The purpose of that, that means the purpose, if we suffer well, this is what happens, so that the name of Jesus' purpose may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So mutual glory will happen. We will be glorified in him. That is brought into the eternal state and fulfilled everything that God has put together for his governmental reign to come into existence. And he in us and we will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the increase of his government will have no end. There will be no other competing kings trying to usurp or pull a coup. No coup d'etat on this one, baby. Then it says, the increase of his peace. That means his shalom will be quant quantitative and qualitative. And then it says, and, and, and there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Every king, when they come into existence, the first thing they want to do is be established or bring their reign to fruition so that there are no, there's no competition or any other fights that are to break out to compete against his rule. When Jesus Christ finally comes to rule and set up shop, all people will be put to sleep. But not only will he establish the reign, bring the reign to fruition, but it says he will uphold it, meaning that Jesus will sustain his own rule. So he will make sure that the rule is firm and that his rule is seen by his people throughout the entire globe. Then it describes the nature of his, of his reign. It describes it. It says, with justice and with righteousness... From this time forth and forevermore, he will have extrinsic righteousness and intrinsic righteousness. Beautiful. Check this out. He will properly judge extrinsically, talking about externally. 
He will, he, in other words, the Lord Jesus Christ will righteously act in how he um, brings to fruition and putting together everything that God always wanted all of kings to do instead of having faultiness in their execution externally. But not only externally, but internally. I, I like the sense of this, this next word because this intrinsic righteousness points to the fact that this is also, a, this is a relational term. And it talks about Jesus's reliability and loyalty to the community of faith. He will have honest interaction. Justice points to Jesus's transcendence. His righteousness points to his eminence. That he'll hang with us. He'll hang with you in eternity. Now, I don't know how you react to that. I don't know. I don't know if God gonna have me in Washington D.C. in eternity, or Philly, or where, where I'm gonna be. Cause I wanna, I wanna reign with Him. I don't know about y'all. And I can't imagine the physical Jesus paying me a visit. And just comes and sits in my living room if I have one. <clears throat> and he, like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like, 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 I don't, like, I, can you imagine Jesus coming and talking to you and spending time with you over a cup of eternal coffee <laughs> for tea, tea lovers, <clears throat> Kool-Aid, some mystic iced tea, whatever your thing is. It says that he will hang with us. That's how simple this text is talking about. It's a king that will hang with his subjects. He won't just rule from Jerusalem. He'll come chill with you. And he, while he's with you, he's still transcendent. Yet imminent. He's with you, but he's above you. He's with you, but he's still with you. That's who's be, that's who whose birth we celebrate. That's, that's whose birth we celebrate. And so I pray that this Christmas, that when you're with your family, that you halt something, that you halt things. And you'll begin to unfold to your children, to your nieces and nephews, the God man. You can call him a buddy, whatever you want to call him, but you better still make him transcendent. Don't make him too familiar. We always want to be careful of that. But he's going to move us from servants to friends. I can't imagine what it's going to be like to hang with my Lord for eternity. To hang with him. To have him in common. To have five side chats, a bunch of us together. Leather couches, sit out, you know feet up on the coffee table we don't need any Bibles out because our brain will already have all of the Bible in it our hearts will have it engraved on our hearts fully we'll be able to fully live it out and he'll I don't know what language he's going to speak but we're going to understand it I don't know if he'll even have to talk to us I don't know if he'll just tele some type of telepathy 
You're like. <laughs> but whatever it is going to be like, I pray that you will appreciate your Lord. And that you'll look forward to spending eternity with the ideal king. Father, oh, before I pray.